Hey everybody, this is Farmer D with the Citizen Farmers Podcast, bringing you inspiration, knowledge, and resources to help you grow healthy food, build thriving communities, and give back to the earth. For the past 25 years, I've been designing and building farms and gardens from backyards to agrihoods, and I'm excited to share my passion and experience for growing food and community with you. Let's dig in. So let's talk about working the soil. Okay, we've talked a lot about the importance of soil. We've talked about the chemistry of soil. We've talked about the biology of soil. We've talked about the philosophy of nitrogen in the soil. Now, getting into the real meat of this chapter, we want to talk about how do you work the soil. And one of my favorite farmers and mentors is a guy named Jeff Poppin, the barefoot farmer in Tennessee, longtime friend, 25-year friend, one of the most incredible farmers, biodynamic farmer. He has this great analogy that he taught me many years ago, that when he plows when he turns the soil, the analogy he uses of how to approach turning the soil is as if you're turning sleeping babies. Okay, now I've had three babies and, you know, babies are, they're, they're heavy, but you want to be very gentle with them, right? And so the idea of turning a sleeping baby is that it takes effort, but it is done with great care and gentleness and intention and love. So when we're turning our gardens, we take the same approach. So a couple of principles here. The the soil has natural layers, and we don't want to flip it upside down, right? We want to preserve the layers of the soil. And so going in and flipping everything is not a great approach. But aerating oxygen in the soil is really important. So we do want to aerate the soil. Now, whether we do that mechanically using tools and equipment, or we do that using biology, using the worms and the microorganisms, either way, we want to get oxygen into the soil. We want to get organic matter into the soil. We want to get these amendments into the soil, right? We want to build the biology of the soil. So let's talk a little bit about the tools for for preparing the soil. You know, the main tool I would say for preparing soil is a digging fork. Okay, now, unfortunately, like the digging forks in a lot of the stores are not great quality. They've gotten a little better over the years. You might want to go to like a specialty tool company or like a Johnny's or a Peaceful Valley or, or, you know, a really good local garden center that carries high quality tools and get a really good digging fork because a good digging fork goes a long way in your garden. If you're going to make one investment in a tool in the garden, I'd say get a good digging fork. There's also something called a broad fork or a U-bar. And a broad fork is basically like a digging fork, but it's wider, broader. It's designed specifically for preparing beds, oxygenating beds without turning them. So a broad fork is awesome. And then if you want to get a little more scaled up, there are the tiller, a walk-behind tractor with different attachments like a tiller or a power harrow. You know, tillers work. They're very effective at, at preparing soil quickly. The downside of a tiller is that it cuts the soil and creates what's called a hard pan, right? Whenever you go through with a tiller, especially people like to go deep, which is not good. Because if you go deep with a tiller, what ends up happening is you end up creating a hard pan at whatever depth you go down to. What I mean by a hard pan is when you slice the soil, which is essentially what you're doing, these blades are coming through and cutting the soil, right there it drops and compacts. And that compaction makes it really hard for roots to penetrate. So plants will start to grow, their roots will hit that hard pan, and they'll stunt, and they'll struggle. And it's really hard. The only way I've seen a tiller to work well is when you only till the very top inch or two of the soil, right? Kind of preparing a seed bed. And then the the plant's getting down beneath that little first inch or two, and so they're not hitting the hard pan. You're not creating a hard pan. Using a digging fork or a broad fork does the opposite. 
it opens the soil up deep. It allows for roots to easily grow down into that soil without hitting a hard pan. So I really am not a big fan of tillers, you know, but if you really, if that's what you got and that's what you need, my recommendation would be, you know, just till the surface and try to use a digging fork and get down deep. So, so there's, there's just digging, okay? There's just using a digging fork, getting into a, a bed, a new bed, an existing bed, dropping that fork down, you know, 8 to 12 inches, loosening the soil up, aerating it, and doing that. That's a simple, really good approach. If you want to get serious and you want to build a really amazing bed, then you could take a double digging approach. And double digging is essentially based on like the French intensive method. John Jevons brought this concept to the world many years ago, a few decades ago. And it's a lot of work, but it pays off in the long term because you really only have to do it once. And if you're on a small enough scale, it's basically like building a raised bed. But instead of building a raised bed up, you're basically building your raised bed down. So what you do in short, and there's more detail in the book, and you can Google, you know, double digging, is you basically take a little trench of soil out at the end of the bed. You dig out a trench about three feet wide in both directions and maybe about a foot deep. You put that in a wheelbarrow and take it to the end of the bed. Now, the one key is you have to leave a shelf. You take the topsoil off the shelf at the end of the trench, and I'll explain why. And then what you'll do is you'll add compost and amendments down in the bottom of that trench. You'll take your digging fork or your U-bar and you'll go down another 10 inches. So now you're like 20 to 25 inches deep and you're amending and aerating way down in the soil. And then what you do is you take that shelf and you slide it with a shovel. You slide it over to the end of the bed and then you take the topsoil and you create another little shelf, move that topsoil on top of that shelf. And so again, you're not turning it upside down. And then you move the shelf over, bring the topsoil on top of that, move the shelf over, bring the topsoil until you've filled that trench and you're left with another shelf at the end of the next trench and you do the same thing. And you work your way across the whole bed and at the end you have your wheelbarrow full of the first trench and you add that in. And now what you've done is you've built a double dug raised bed, you've added a tremendous amount of oxygen and so the bed will now be almost a foot taller than it was or 8 to 12 inches taller raised up mostly with oxygen and some amendments, some of your compost and other inputs. That's kind of the premium approach if you want to really get serious. Another approach similar to double digging but a little different is called Hugel culture. It's a German term, a German concept, comes from a more of a wet kind of climate, you know, where you might find more like the Northeast and the Midwest, the Northwest, not as good for the drier climates in this country because it really needs moisture to break down. And what you do essentially is you dig out your trench and instead of double digging, you actually fill this deep trench with woody material. So maybe be branches from pruning, you know, your yard. It can be any kind of woody, branchy stuff that normally you wouldn't put in your garden. You wouldn't even put it in your compost. You might chip it and then compost it or mulch with it. But hugel culture is unique because what you do is you build this trench filled with woody material and then you cover that with soil and compost and you build a big mounded bed over this woody material. And what happens is all that wood slowly breaks down. And it creates an incredible environment for all kinds of fungal activity, really good for beneficial biology. There's a lot of air in that. And then when you plant into it, most people plant perennials primarily in hugel culture beds. It's kind of a permaculture approach. Perennials like berries and fruit trees and things like that, longer term crops. But you can plant annuals in it too. And once those plants, those roots get down into that fungal repository of all this activity that's going on down in the soil, kind of this slow decomposition process, they tap into a lot of that fungal activity and it can be really beneficial for healthy plants. 
It's a lot of work. It's a good way to get rid of a lot of woody material on a property and build up a really big mounded bed. So it's an interesting approach. The other thing is no-till and no-till is getting much more popular. The premise of no-till is essentially that you're not disturbing the soil. You know, you're not digging, you're not using tillers, you're basically mimicking the forest floor, right? In a natural forest floor, lots of leaves fall, organic matter builds up, it's undisturbed by human touch, and nature is amazing at building up fertility on her own. And so this is kind of a biomimicking approach to say, okay, what if I were to just kind of recreate that forest floor environment? And so what you might do is you might do one dig first, the first time you ever work a bed or not, but I'd probably recommend digging that first time to kind of loosen and aerate the native soil. But then what you would do is you would layer things like compost, cardboard, paper, anything organic, not toxic, you know, that would kind of sheet mulch. And you basically build a sheet mulch, layers of mulch on top of your garden. And that's going to suppress any weeds. It's going to attract all those worms and little microorganisms and life in the soil to come up and start breaking that down. And then you just pop holes in that with a shovel or trowel and plant right into it. Or let it decompose for, you know, a winter or a season or a year and kind of break down and then plant into it. So, you know, more and more farms are moving into these no-till methodologies. It's great because you have a lot less impact on the land, a lot less time on equipment, you know, less fossil fuels, less tractors and pollution and noise. And you can really build up incredible fertility and soil structure this way. The key ingredient is compost. Some people would just layer six, eight, 12 inches of good compost or a blended planting mix with compost and native soil and pile it on top of a garden and plant right into it. There's some cool no-till approaches that you can look at. The lasagna gardening method was one kind of kitschy term that caught on. There's also living mulch. So whereas no-till is mostly kind of a mulch-based approach, there's also what's called living mulch, which is where you actually use a cover crop like clover, a low-growing, not too aggressive, nitrogen-fixing clover, like a white clover, and you establish that in a bed and you have that as like a living mulch, and you can plant right into it, you know, mostly bigger crops like tomatoes and peppers and things like that. And that's a pretty cool approach as well, where you keep a living, low-growing, nitrogen-fixing living mulch beneath your crops. A little bit more technical to establish, but totally doable. Another one is where you grow things like buckwheat. Buckwheat's awesome. It's funny, I was actually telling a friend of mine the other day, one of my favorite things I learned from Hugh Lovell when I apprenticed with Hugh in 94, 95, was this cover cropping technique where you would blend in food like brassicas, things like Chinese radishes, purple top turnips, canola, other mustard greens. And you'd blend some of that seed in with your cover crop, with your ryegrass and your vetch and your clover and your winter peas. And you would plant the cover crop in the fall And as the cover crop gets established, all these awesome veggies come growing out of it. And you just harvest right in the cover crop. You're picking your your turnip greens and your mustard greens and your canola greens, you know, eventually harvesting the, the roots out. And the cover crop slowly just fills in those gaps and takes over. And then you end up with this awesome cover crop, which you can eat some of that too, like the winter peas. So that's a really cool approach as well. It's kind of growing your crops within a cover crop mix. So you're both building soil fertility, keeping the ground covered and harvesting at the same time. And there's an awesome farmer who I've been a huge fan of for many years named Masanoba Fukuoka. He wrote a great book called The One Straw Revolution. 
And he calls it do-nothing farming, kind of the lazy person's approach to farming. You know, the whole philosophy is around working with these natural cycles. I mentioned buckwheat because buckwheat's a great nurse crop. And what that means is it nurses other more tender, slow-growing crops underneath it. You can plant buckwheat and undersow carrots, which are slow to grow, radishes or beets and other things, mostly root crops, even like lettuces. And the buckwheat grows up, kind of nurses it. It provides a little bit of shade, catches the moisture, protects it from drying out, suppresses the weeds. And then you, you can just simply chop the tops of the buckwheat off and up come your carrots and your beets and your other, other crops right up through the buckwheat. So that's a nurse crop. Buckwheat is also a really fast-growing cover crop that you can plant and then just knock it down and then let it just sit as a mulch and then plant right into it, like transplant your tomatoes and peppers and squash and eggplant and and whatever right into the laid-down buckwheat mulch. I remember first seeing that done at the Michael Fields Institute when I went to one of the biodynamic conferences there in the early 90s. And they were doing a lot of buckwheat no-till where they would just plant buckwheat. It's like three weeks from seed to fully flowered. And it's gorgeous. And the bees love it. And it's just, it's a great cover crop. It's one of my favorites, especially for warm season, you know, quick growing warm season cover crops. I'll just dive a little bit into cover crop here while I'm on it. Cover crop is basically a crop that you plant to cover the soil. You never really want the soil to be exposed to, to sun. You want to keep things covered, mulch or something growing in it as much as you can. Minimize the amount of exposure the soil has to the sun. So buckwheat is just a really easy to grow cover crop. You can just sprinkle it out, you know, broadcast seed it, rake it in, and then it comes up really quick. It grows super fast and it's easy to get rid of. I mean, it's, it's just like you just knock it down or you pull it out or you mow it and plow it under. General best practice is you want your cover crops to flower, not go to seed, flower. And before they start to peak the flowering process in like a clover or a vetch or buckwheat, it'll peak flower, the highest amount of flowers are blooming, and then it'll start to fade and go to seed. And you want to basically mow it or knock it back right when it's peak flowering. That's when you're getting the biggest benefit out of the crop. Once it gets past that, the energy starts to come up to support the seed development. And you're not trying to grow seed, most likely. So you want to plow it under I'm going to knock it back. So that's that. Let's move on to other growing techniques. So we talked about no-till. We talked about just regular kind of digging with broad forks and digging forks. We talked about double digging. We talked about hugel culture. Let's go above ground. We'll talk just a little bit about raised beds. I'm a big fan of raised beds. I mean, mostly I farmed in Georgia for many years, heavy clay soils. When I started making compost with Whole Foods in 2007, we started an initiative as part of their green mission to take all the food waste from the whole food stores in the South and compost it because it was all going in the landfill. And so I developed a partnership with them and I partnered with a composter in Georgia, Longwood Plantation, Mike Smith, and we started making amazing biodynamic compost with whole foods food scraps. We would sell that compost back to farmers and also we blended our own planting mix for raised beds. Because what I found was in order to get people gardening, and I'm talking to you, you know, it's hard, right? Like digging is a lot of work. I love it and it's rewarding work, but it's a lot of work. And if you're in like a heavy clay Georgia soil, it's a little bit of a deterrent. So how do we take away some of those obstacles and make it easier? We build raised beds. My dad's actually a longtime woodworker. And so once we had the compost and we started making our own potting soils, which is really a planting mix specifically for raised beds, And then I partnered with an organic fertilizer company to blend a custom fertilizer based on that soil mix. 
So it was like a fertilizer that just like really complemented that soil mix. And it was kind of like your kind of like your coffee with milk and sugar, right? It was like it had everything. You had you had the raised bed, the mug, you had the the soil, the planting mix, coffee, and you had the fertilizer, which was like adding the sugar, right? Once you had those ingredients, you had balanced soil with all the biology, balanced chemistry, the right amount of inputs and fertilizer. We had a ratio that we would give people, and like it was kind of foolproof. And the quality of gardens that people grew in the Farmer D soil and in the raised beds was off the charts. And so one of the things that you can do that's pretty easy is just build a raised bed, you know, and we're actually planning to share a lot of our designs for raised beds that over the 10 years that we built raised beds of all different kinds, on the ground, above ground, like raised, elevated planters on legs, planters for patios, vertical planters, window boxes. I mean, we designed probably about 100 different products, a number of which actually we sold through Williams-Sonoma for many years. All FSC sustainably harvested cedar, western red cedar, made in our wood shop by hand. It was a lot of work, beautiful, beautiful line of products. We're relaunching some of them now, and we'll make them available on citizenfarmers.com. But you know, the, the key there is that, you know, when you use a raised bed, the advantage you have, there's a couple of advantages. So one is you can put a floor on it, like a chicken wire or hardware cloth base or a landscape fabric base really easily, right? You just take the bed upside down and staple gun in a base. And the, the reason for that in many cases is like gophers. So a lot of the country, gophers are a big issue. So boom, that solves your gopher problem. In some places, you want to put these beds on soil that you're not really sure about whether or not that soil is healthy. And and this is actually something that I meant to speak about earlier, which is soil testing, right? We talked about you can do a chemistry soil test to check the pH and the, the chemistry of your soil. You can do a biological soil test to check out how much of the different beneficial bacteria and fungi and protozoa and all the things that are in your soil, and also the not so good ones, nematodes and and other things. You can also test, and it's important to test, especially in an urban environment for heavy metals and pesticides, especially heavy metals, because you don't want to be growing food in soil that's contaminated with lead. So if you know, if you've tested your soil or you're questioning because of where you are, or you're just not even on soil, maybe you're on a driveway, you don't have soil, then you can use a raised bed and put a bottom on it. One of the nice things that I've done in the past that I like, it's easy, is just buy some landscape fabric, staple the landscape fabric into the bottom of the raised bed, flip it over, fill it up with soil, and you're good to go. It doesn't really matter what you're on. That's one of the many advantages to raised beds. The other is controlling the soil. So you can fill those raised beds with really premium soil, well-balanced, blended, organic, planting mix, you know, soil specifically for raised beds. And, and, you know, essentially you want about, you know, 10 to 30% of that soil to be compost and or worm castings and the other to be some native soil, maybe some like, you know, aged bark fines, a sustainably harvested peat, humus, which is one of the things we used, you know, some kind of blend. So it's not just straight compost. It's a good mix. So we would, we would blend our biodynamic compost with a peat humus, an aged bark fine, and a little bit of sand. And that was how we blended our soil mixes. And that, all that came from right there on the site that we worked with what we had locally. So you can fill your raised beds with really good soil. You can blend in a really nice organic fertilizer. You can follow the directions on the fertilizer as far as ratio. I want to say about a pound per cubic foot is about what we would recommend, between a half a pound and a pound of organic fertilizer blended into the top six inches of soil. That's a simple way to kind of, you know, calculate your inputs, how much fertilizer to add. 
And so what we would do is we build a bed, put it in place, fill it with soil mix, fill it with the planty mix, blend in the organic fertilizer and plant, right? And like, boom, instant success. The only other piece of that is irrigation and watering. So there's lots of different ways to approach raised beds, different depths, different widths. I'd say I'd like to go 10 inches or deeper. You can do six inch beds if you have good native soil underneath. If you don't have good native soil or you know, you're not depending on the native soil beneath the bed, I'd say a minimum of 10 inches. And then you, know, you would want to also think about width and like not getting a bed too wide where you can't reach across it. So I like three foot wide. You know, you can go four. Some people even go five foot. I try to keep right four foot, four foot beds for adults, three foot wide beds for kids. That way you can stand on the side of the bed and reach the middle from either side. And then, you know, length is really just depends on the space you're in. You know, we do a lot of three foot by six foot beds, four by eight beds and kind of go from there. And there's tons of different containers, right? Pots, all different kinds of planters. The fabric planters are really cool. Reusing metal tubs, you know, like horse troughs are pretty cool. They get a little hot, but metals, metal works. There's a lot of different things. You can plant an old bathtub, you know, so that you can get creative and reclaim. The thing to just be careful of with containers is just avoiding things that could have toxic leaching. So like don't use treated wood. Use like cedar or redwood or dug fir if you're going to build a bed, if you want it to last. Uh, stay away from treated lumber. Stay away from tires and things that could leach toxic dioxins from the rubber. Those are the main things. You know, you, you can use cinder blocks, build block beds, and rock beds are great because they last so long. So you can get creative with that. There's a lot of different approaches, a lot of things you can DIY and make yourself. And the last thing I'll talk about on container gardening is soilless gardening, right? Hydroponic and aeroponic. And, you know, I'm a fan of growing food. So if that's what you got to work with, go for it. I'm not a huge fan of hydroponic and aeroponic for the primary reason of what this whole episode is about, which is the importance and value of soil and the living life force within soil. And you just don't get that in a hydroponic or aeroponic system. If you're growing in just water, you're getting kind of the watery element and you're not getting the soil life element. So you're not getting all those dense minerals and rich biology. You can get nutrients. You can even get organic nutrients in water and grow plants. You know, an example, if you take a radish and you grow it in organic soil versus growing a radish hydroponically, and you sliced it really thin and you looked up to a light, most likely the radish that was grown in the soil would be solid. You wouldn't be able to see through it. It would have solid really dense amino acid chains, really complex structure, really dense and mineral rich. That radish grown in water, even though it looks the same, when you slice it, you probably see right through it, pretty transparent, because those nutrients are all just coming through the water element, not through the mineral element. So I find, I find hydroponic food is just not as dense. It doesn't, doesn't have that same quality, whether you want to look at the mineral content and nutrient content, or you just, the life force in the food is just not quite the same. So I'm, I'm a big fan of soil, but at the same time, there are some cool hydroponic systems out there. There's all kinds of, you know, the tower gardens and the DIY hydroponic systems, and there's, it's cool. And you can do a lot in a small space. They're a bit to maintain. I encourage people who do it to try to do it organically, though it can get a little bit messy. You know, it's a lot cleaner to do it with conventional fertilizers, but to me, it's why do it at all at that point. I'll leave the hydroponics at that. There's aeroponic, which is a little bit more of a sophisticated system using just air no water, no soil. That's kind of a new technology that's been emerging now and pretty interesting. And I've been noticing more and more of these kinds of systems designed for home, in-home scale. You know, so I'm, I'm a fan of people just growing food. So if that's what gets you growing 
and you're into it and it gets your kids interested and then go for it. I'm a dirt farmer. I like the soil and that's kind of where my orientation lies. So with that, I think we pretty much covered a good bit of ground, no pun intended, on tilling and preparing your soil. And with all that said, I'd say, you know, what works best for your situation? Assess your current soil where you are from a safety perspective, from a quality of biology and chemistry. Give your soil some love, you know, throw some compost down, maybe amend it. It's a good thing to do also for your landscaping, just to give your plants, you know, feed the soil where your plants are. And then when it comes to your garden, you know, kind of figure out which one of these approaches works best for you whether that's digging some beds or, you know, mulching and doing no-till or going all in with a double dig or a hugel culture system or building raised beds and containers or even hydroponic systems. The most important thing is get out there and start growing. Join the Citizen Farmers community. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. For more information, check out today's show notes. Special thanks to our pilot sponsor, Netafin, the company that first brought drip irrigation to the world over 50 years ago. This podcast was co-produced and recorded by Ben Bernstein. Our audio editor is Stephanie Lamond. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Citizen Farmers Podcast with Farmer D. Until next time, enjoy your time in the garden.